On today's show, a full-fledged discussion of the weekend's football games. But before we get there, I will give you one reason why gambling should be legal everywhere. Tonight is Monday Night Football. The New Orleans Saints going on the road to the Seattle Seahawks. The total is set at 42.5 points, and I will be taking the over. You might hear that and go, well, that's weird because these two teams are quarterbacked by Jameis Winston and Geno Smith. And that is the exact point. Turnovers, 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 turnovers. Jameis Winston, he is the turnover king of my lifetime. He's the only quarterback I can ever remember who literally makes me laugh out loud multiple times per game. He did it in college at Florida State when he was throwing the ball backwards against Oregon in the playoff. He did it with the Buccaneers when he was throwing 30 picks, and he's still doing it as starting quarterback with New Orleans. Geno Smith, he's kind of the prince of turnovers of my lifetime. He flamed out with the New York Jets throwing pick sixes left and right. He's now replaced the injured Russell Wilson to quarterback Seattle. Jameis and Geno together. It's a recipe for the over. We could have pick sixes. We could have fumbles returned for touchdowns. At the very least, we're going to have short fields set up by turnovers. It's everything that an over better can dream of. And it's our reason why gambling should be legal everywhere because we may never get another opportunity to bet a total that can simply be covered by pick sixes. And now, Sports with Chris Rawl. Welcome to Monday on the Margins, where every week on Monday, we examine the tiny margins that decide the outcome of all of these football games. The margins are small, my friends. Never, ever, ever, ever forget it. Now, we're getting into both seasons. Collegiate, the NFL, the playoff races, they're starting to gain a little bit of clarity. Not a ton, but a little bit. I want to talk about some games that have implications directly in those respects. Playoff implications. I'll start on Saturday with a couple of college games. The slate looked very sleepy going into Saturday. Not a lot of big-time matchups. We didn't know where the games were going to be good, where they were not. As it turns out, 10 a.m., Rocky Mountain time, right out of the gate. We had a couple games that made our eyeballs go, Foo! The first one is Illinois against Penn State. Illinois playing on the road as 24.5-point underdogs. The total was set at 46 Penn State, hopes and dreams of a Big Ten title and possibly a playoff berth. Those were the implications heading into this game. Uh, Penn State, if they're looking ahead, they say, oh, next Saturday we're playing Ohio State. It's going to be the biggest game of the season. If we beat them, I mean, we're sitting pole position for the Big Ten title and for a playoff berth. Our only loss was against Iowa, and our quarterback, Sean Clifford, got injured in that game. We were up. We probably would have won if he still played. Sean Clifford, he's available for the Illinois game, but we're not sure how injured. As it turns out, he was very injured, but he still played the whole game. Now, when you're talking about margins and the stuff that can decide football games, in all my years of watching football, this might have been the clowniest way to decide who wins and who loses. Just can't remember anything that amounted to what Penn State Illinois gave us. A nine-overtime finish. They still hit the under, magically, because it's the Big Ten. Illinois wins 20-18. to 18. Now, you're hearing that, and you go, nine overtime. How did they not score? Well, 
A couple years ago, Texas A&M and LSU played a game over Thanksgiving weekend. I was down in Mesquite, Nevada, watching it. It was a very, very enjoyable game. Goes to seven overtimes, incredible back and forth. The whole sports book's into it. I'm sucking down a bunch of cigar smoke. Probably took 10 years off my life, but I enjoyed it. I don't care. You know, we're all going to die anyway. What do you want? But that game kind of led to a breaking point. The NCAA, which loves getting up on its moral high horse and saying, we got to protect these student athletes because we care about their well-being and not about all this money that we're printing hand over fist. Well, they step in and they say, we're making a rule change because we are the arbiters of morality and we're going to stop this health problem for these young student athletes. And they changed the overtime rules. Now, you can play two overtimes with the normal rules. Each team gets the ball starting at the 25-yard line. However, after the second overtime, it turns into what amounts to uh, penalty kicks in football. Each team gets a two-point conversion attempt. That's it. Now, it's a very strange and clunky way of deciding a football game that we really felt in this Illinois-Penn State game. Because each side gets a two-point conversion. Now, you switch sides after each attempt, much like the old overtime rules. You each get a timeout to use whenever you need it. And it's the least true version of football that I have ever watched in my entire life. Again, think penalty kicks in soccer somehow applied to football. Think the shootout in ice hockey somehow applied to football. And at least with the shootout, that's kind of fun. And in hockey, it's only applicable in the regular season. They say once we get to the playoffs... It's real. It's a real way of determining who's going to win. We're playing five on five, sudden death overtime. It's literally the most pure form of this sport that you can possibly find. Uh, this overtime battle between Illinois and Penn State, it was not that. Starting in the third overtime, these offenses, which were just putrid, you could plug your nose and still somehow smell it and taste it. That's how putrid it was. They combined to go 10 consecutive two-point attempts without scoring. And it was just slow, and they're switching sides. It was not good. At one point, Art Sikowski gets injured, the Illinois quarterback. Sean Clifford on the Penn State side, he's playing injured. He looks the part. It culminates in Illinois finally scrubbing one across the goal line in the ninth overtime to win, to pull off the upset, to dash Penn State's hopes and dreams of national titles and playoff bursts and maybe Big Ten titles. Just a strange, strange, strange and bad way to decide a football game. And I couldn't help but think after it was done. And I thought that was weird and bad. I couldn't help but thinking about this rule and going, we love to take away uh, really grand sweeping proclamations from the outcome of a game. And I can't help but think, what would happen if this came to be in a playoff game or in a national title game? And you had Ohio State and Georgia in the national title, and it's nip and tuck, and it goes to overtime, and they're trading blows. And then you get to the third overtime, and it's decided by two-point conversion per side. I, I just can't stop thinking about how sad I would be in that moment. Because it would not be a representation of who the better team is. It would just be, go out there and eh, we might as well just meet right at midfield and flip a coin. And whoever wins that coin toss, well, we'll crown you the national champion. So when it comes to the playoff race, I'm sure many of you are thinking, yeah, uh, I get what you're saying. At the same time, Penn State's now eliminated from that race. 
And, you know, I mean, even if they'd won this game, they were struggling with Illinois. Is that team really playoff worthy at that point? And that's a fair thought to have because, yeah, Illinois is a very bad team. And if you're a playoff contender, an ideal playoff contender, which really doesn't exist, but if you're that idealized version of it, you probably shouldn't struggle with very bad teams, you know. But in an alternate world where maybe this rule doesn't exist or maybe it does and Penn State somehow squeaks out a win and then they go and beat Ohio State next week, all is forgiven. Everything is forgotten. Nobody remembers that you beat it around with Brett Bielema and the Fighting Illini. They just say, oh, that was just a win, but you came roaring out the next week and you beat one of the best teams in the nation. Instead, they lost. Wipe them off the playoff race. We, we don't need to talk about them in that respect anymore. So I bring this game up, and it's interesting to talk about when compared to a game that was going on at the same time. Playoff contender struggling against an opponent that's just not good. Oklahoma Sooners. They're playing on the road against the Kansas Jayhawks. They're 38 and a half point favorites. The total set at 67. We all know the story of what's supposed to happen here. Oklahoma wins by 600. Uh, the Jayhawks keep counting down the time until basketball season happens, and we all go on our merry way. This is not what happened within the game. Because we get to halftime, and Oklahoma's being shut out. They have less than 100 yards of offense in the first half. They only have three drives, 17 total plays. Very, very, very bizarre stuff because we are talking about Kansas, the Kansas Jayhawks. They are not a good football team. They are synonymous with just the liquid garbage that is at the bottom of the dumpster when you dump it and you can't get all of it out and it just stays there at the bottom and you go, I don't even want to worry about that. That's what the Kansas Jayhawks are to football, that liquid garbage. We don't even know what it is, okay? And instead, they're leading... Uh, playoff contender at halftime. For the game, Kansas outgains Oklahoma. At one point, the Kansas Twitter account, official Twitter account, they know that it's supposed to be a blowout and, and nobody's there. And then it's a game and wow, Kansas is up. At one point in the game, they tweet out, everybody who's around, show up. Don't even need a ticket. Just walk into the stadium. <laughs> Come be loud. Rock truck Jayhawk. Get excited. I mean, it's a, it's a youth sports game at that point. Just walk in, start screaming at the refs, boo Oklahoma. I mean, that's an incredible thing to have happen in a collegiate football game. When you're thinking about other areas of the United States where you're spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars just to get in and sit in the nosebleeds. Kansas, they're playing Oklahoma. Hey, walk in through that West Gate, pick a chair, sit anywhere. That's the game. So Oklahoma comes storming back in the second half and... There's a play that I want to talk about that's really interesting for this examination of the margins and just the stuff that can decide a football game and could be the difference between uh, our perception of a supposed playoff contender moving forward and what happened to Penn State, Penn State, which is now, nope, you're out. We don't even really need to talk about you. Play occurs with three minutes and 20 seconds left on the clock. Oklahoma is leading at this point 28-23. They have a fourth and one at their own 46 Yard line, okay? Oklahoma, they say, we're going for it. We're trusting in our offense. Kennedy Brooks, great tailback, takes a handoff from Caleb Williams, running out to the right. Oh, no. Rock Chalk Jayhawk comes up, stuffs him. Looks like they're going to get the save. It's going to be Kansas ball down five, three minutes to go. This is going to be insane. Instead, a play occurs that I've never seen happen. Caleb Williams, true freshman, new starter at quarterback. 
He runs over as Kennedy Brooks is getting hauled down and somehow strips the ball from his own teammate and runs for a couple yards to get the first down, which ultimately leads to the game ceiling touchdown. Oklahoma wins 35 to 23. I honestly don't think I've ever seen this play in my life. If I have, I've forgotten about it. But the quarterback comes in and strips the ball from his own players. He's being hauled down on a fourth down and runs off for a first down. That's the margin of this game against the Kansas Jayhawks. Now, when we contrast this to Penn State going down, two teams that we thought were good going into Saturday that struggled mightily against very, very, very poor competition. Um, If Oklahoma ends up going undefeated throughout this season, it will not matter what the margin of victory against Kansas was. Won't matter that the the examination of the margin says, you know what the difference in this game was? A very bizarre fourth down conversion. It won't matter. Now, it's also interesting to think about that in terms of Penn State who went down, Oklahoma who did not, our perception of both moving forward, and another team that won on Saturday that is a supposed playoff contender against poor competition in a closer than expected game, Cincinnati. The non-Power 5 usurper that I keep saying the playoff committee is not going to want to have to deal with. They're 28.5 point favorites against Navy. As it turns out, it's a pretty close game. Navy scores a touchdown with under a minute to go to cut the lead to 7. They recover the onside kick, but end up throwing an interception. That's the game. Since he wins by 7. Now, the talking points coming out of this game versus the Oklahoma game I found to be very fascinating. Because it was covered in a manner... That this kind of stuff always is. Oklahoma, oh, survival, man. Yeah, you know, you still go on next week and, and you know, you can just beat a few more teams on your schedule. Oklahoma State and Iowa State and, and you'll be fine. Oh, but Cincinnati, ah, that, that's too bad because you really have to smash every opponent to show the committee how good you are because maybe your strength of schedule isn't as good and we just... We don't have a lot of years prior that we can rely upon that show us how good you are in this particular season. Granted, that should have no tie-in whatsoever, but that's just how we think. And I'm sitting there going, okay, that's weird. Because Oklahoma, who everybody 100% agrees, if they went out, they're in the playoff. I even have a bet on that because I believe so strongly in perception of Blue Bloods when it comes to getting a playoff berth. If Oklahoma wins out, oh, they're fine. Oklahoma, a team that has beaten Tulane by five, team that has beaten Nebraska by seven, team that has beaten West Virginia by three on a last-second field goal, team that beat the Kansas Jayhawks by 12 in a game that they needed a fourth-down conversion with three minutes to go to separate. Hmm, what do all those teams have in common? They're not very good football teams. Um, Nebraska and West Virginia, all right, so-so. Tulane, uh, thumbs down. Kansas, eight thumbs down. Liquid garbage at the bottom of the pool, remember? Uh, Cincinnati, uh, they're treated in in a very different manner. One game could be all that the committee needs to seize onto and say, well, you know, you beat Notre Dame, who they look pretty impressive. They've only lost one game, and it was to Cincinnati, and it was at Notre Dame. And, you know, you beat Indiana, nice, reasonable win there. But ah, that Navy game, it was a little too close. You know, it's just... Might be the difference when we're talking about you versus Oklahoma. This is one of the things that I hear coming out of the game, and it really drives me insane. 
It's going to drive me more insane as the season goes on. I'm talking about it now. It's just a way of trying to cope with it because it frustrates me to no end. This way that I know the playoff selection committee thinks, the way that they talk about these teams and select them in a manner that I don't think is the most fair, which is your blue bloods, your teams with pedigree, teams that maybe have had success in the past that somehow is used in present day to justify selecting this team over this team, despite the fact that there's honestly no way of knowing if Oklahoma is better than Cincinnati. I would say if they played on a neutral field right now, I would bet Cincinnati. If you just gave it to me, pick them. But that's me. A lot of other people might think differently. Now, there was one more game on Saturday that I will talk about in regards to the margins and just the stuff that that decides these games. It's just asinine sometimes. It's so weird that we'll play football games and say this team is good and this team is bad. And what does it come down to? Oklahoma State went on the road to play at Iowa State. Oklahoma State was a seven-point underdog. They were ranked in the top 10 at the time of this game. Total was set at 47. It's a three-point game. Um, Oklahoma State's trailing, 21-24. Very end of the game. They're driving down, just outside field goal range. Um, and, And there's a fourth and short. Throw a little pass out to the side. Looks to the naked eye like... Oklahoma State has gotten the fourth down. Ref runs in with a spot that is short of the first down marker. And I go, oh, well, all right. That didn't look like that's where the ball got, but maybe I'm wrong. Let's, you know, Maybe we'll see this on review. So they're celebrating the names, but they say, we've got to take this to review. Goes to review. <laughs> and I have a moment to reflect on the most inexact science on planet earth i actually tweeted some or retweeted something earlier this week that tied in nicely to this game where the the person who'd sent out the tweet said this is science and there's a video clip of two refs one the original marker of the ball he he fumbles it and puts it down he says yeah this is about where it is then he tosses it to his buddy who's at the hash mark ready to set the ball where it should be so the teams can then snap it and he catches it and puts it down about a full football in front of where the other guy measured it this is how Football games can be decided. Measurements that rely upon usually two elderly gentlemen to accurately identify where the ball was in a pile of people moving at warp speed, then marking it where they are, then giving it to their friend who's over there, then having two more friends run in with first down markers and stretch it out to then measure where the ball is. This... Stuff affects who wins and who loses. In this case, it goes to replay. And again, to the naked eye, you say, I think he got it. But the way that replay review works, it has to be 100% provable. And we probably didn't feel that way, even though you could ascertain, I think the ball is there. And instead, comes back out. Eh, uh, Call stands. Not confirmed, but call stands. Ames goes ballistic. Oklahoma State goes down, another top 10 team uh, out the window, and this is the margin of victory. It's that Gene Steratore index card getting flipped down there between the nose of the football and the first down marker. So that's the college game. Um, The NFL side of things yesterday, it was mostly a day of blowouts. Actually, I can't remember a day like it. Just how uncompetitive the vast majority of games were. I heard a stat this morning as I was driving into work that going into the Sunday night game, Indianapolis and San Fran, 
The combined margin of victory of the games was the second largest in a day since the entire merger. That's an incredible stat, and it was reflected in virtually every game. The Patriots are pounding on the Jets. Uh, the Cardinals are pounding on the Texans. Green Bay's kind of running away with things against Washington. Cincy's smashing Baltimore. It was virtually every game. Now, there's one of those blots that I want to concentrate on real fast before I get into the game I want to talk about. Because it was revealing in the sense that an underdog truly understood its place in the game and took the necessary steps to try and win. Detroit Lions going on the road, playing the Los Angeles Rams, Jared Goff Bowl, Detroit 17-point underdogs. That's an enormous spread in the NFL. And Detroit stepped in and coached their game in a manner that I wish every underdog ever would coach it. They looked at themselves honestly and said, we are a heavy underdog here. Uh, We cannot play just a mundane football game and expect to beat this Rams team, one of the best teams in football. So what are the margin things that we can try and do to maximize our edge? We know we have a talent deficit. We know we have a deficit at quarterback. We know we have a deficit on offense versus offense. How can we maximize our edge? Well, let's lean into this idea that we have nothing to lose. We are 17-point underdogs. Everybody expects us to get our ass kicked. So let's just let's just go and start doing things. They score a touchdown right out of the gate. DeAndre Swift, awesome play. Right off of that, onside kick. They recover it. Uh, they stall out at midfield. All right, they're going to punt. Then the game will go according to form. They fake the punt right off of an onside kick. They get that. Later in the game, they fake a second punt. They get that. They're going for it on fourth downs. They're doing all of the stuff that I wish every single coach that ever is around the game would sit at home and take notes and say, oh, whenever my team is a heavy underdog, this is how we should play. We have nothing to lose. If we lose by 50 instead of 40 because of this, who cares? But there's a world where yesterday... The Lions beat the Rams because they maximized edges on the, on the fringes of the game. Yeah, they have a talent deficit, but if you get two fake punts, if you get an onside kick, if you can do stuff like that, though, I mean, those are three consecutive possessions that you were going to have to give the ball to them, and you yourself had it. That amounts to three turnovers, in my opinion. That's the kind of stuff that I love. So the Lions end up going down by nine points, 28-19. A very competitive game down to the end. And a lot of it tied into this particular fact. Just the Lions and Dan Campbell, they coached the game knowing they were a heavy underdog. And they said, let's go for it. That's what I want everybody to do. It was actually very exciting. Now, the game that I really want to talk about, because all these blowouts, they're happening. And you might think that, oh, well, this is just a clear indication of how big of a difference there is between these teams. And sometimes that's true. I think the Jets are just putrid and there might be a huge difference between them and everybody. But many times when you actually watch NFL games, the margins are still small, shockingly. Even if you see the score at the end and you say, oh, wow, that team seemed like they easily handled them. That never accurately depicts. Actually, sometimes it does, but most times it does not accurately depict the margin between the teams at the NFL level, because all of these teams, even the bad ones, they have people who are good. They have coaches who are good. So the Packers play Washington football team yesterday. 
Packers are favored by eight and a half. They end up winning by 14, 24 to 10. Goes under easily, under the total of 48. Now, you see that score and you go, yeah, it probably went according to plan. Uh, Green Bay, they just got ahead, fending them off. Green Bay, they're one of the best teams in football. Washington, they're one of the worst teams. There's a big gap between these two teams. And, and maybe on a different day, that's true. But yesterday, Green Bay's playing at home against one of the worst teams, and it still didn't follow that script. It followed the script that most NFL games follow, which is this game, who wins and who loses, is going to come down to a handful of plays. It's going to come down to execution in the red zone, and it's going to come down to fourth downs. Just a tiny, you know, maybe five plays, maybe seven plays, maybe nine plays, maybe one play, depending on the game. In this game, it was a small handful. It's the first drive. Green Bay goes down. They're in the red zone, but it's fourth and three. A lot of teams would kick the field goal. Matt LaFleur, in a move that I really love, says, we don't need field goals. We want the ball in our best player's hands as much as possible. Rodgers, go out and get this for us. Washington covers it well. Play breaks down. Rodgers has to roll out right. He's running. He can't find anybody. He's running again. Crazy Aaron Rodgers throw back across the field to the middle. Devontae Adams catches it, runs off, touchdown. Pretty big swing play, you know. Green Bay, fourth and three. Stop him there, zero points instead. We got seven on the board. Right near the end of the first half, Washington has almost the exact situation. Fourth and short. Could kick a field goal, but they're saying Rodgers is on the other side of the field. We got to score points, and Ron Rivera went for it. Again, a thing that I would agree with. Uh, McLaurin on the left side. Heineke tries to hit him. Eric Stokes, the cornerback, makes a great play. Bats it down. Stops him on fourth and three. Green Bay ball. Right near the end of the half, Green Bay zips down, scores a touchdown. 14-7 to at the half. It's kind of the margin of what went down in the first half. Green Bay converts a fourth and three for a touchdown. Washington does not, and it leads to Green Bay scoring down the other way. Second half, much the same thing. Um, Green Bay's up by two touchdowns, and Washington drives down the field. This is in the third quarter. Taylor Heineke dives into the end zone. Touchdown. I'm mad because obviously I like Green Bay, and, and now they're inside the spread number. Heineke goes and does the Lambo leap to the one Washington fan. He grew up there. He's talking about before the game, it'd be really cool if I can do this. Goes to replay, and what clearly looked like a touchdown live ends up being just one of those weird interpretations of an NFL rule, which is uh, when you give yourself up, you actually are down at the point here and not where you dove to. So Heineke, who could have just ran it in, does a weird semi-dive into the end zone and gives himself up before the goal line. So this was on third down. Instead of it being the touchdown and 21-14, it's now fourth and inches from the five-inch line. Washington goes for it. Heineke fumbles the snap, bumbles it, catches it. You can't tell if it's a touchdown or not. They rule it. No touchdown on the field. Goes to replay. You still can't tell. Nobody knows what it is. They end up doing a similar thing to Oklahoma State, Iowa State. Come out, say, yeah, call stands. We, who, who the hell knows? Whoever knows if this is tough. Ball's bumbling around. He's sitting on top of a pile crowd surfing. What do you even take from that? So Green Bay gets a stop. Actually, for Green Bay, it's their first, the first time that they stopped a team in the red zone from scoring a touchdown this year. Before that play, 15 opponent trips inside the red zone had ended in 15 touchdowns. An incredible stat. Uh, the broadcast said it was the first time since 1991 a team had gotten this late in the season 
allowing 100% of red zone possessions to be scored as a touchdown. And Green Bay finally gets a stop on just (laughs) a drive that definitely should not have been a stop. Very next possession, Washington defense holds. They get the ball back in good field position. Very next possession, it's the same script. They get right down inside the five, third down. Heineke makes a great play rolling out right, throws a laser to Terry McLaurin right on the money, and he just drops it. No touchdown. Would have put him inside the spread number. Would have made it one possession game, really forced the issue with Green Bay. Instead, they go for it on fourth and two inside the five-yard line. Adrian Amos breaks up a pass. That's it. This is the difference, man. In a game that we all agree Washington's one of the worst teams in football, we all agree Green Bay is one of the best teams in football. And even in that game, Washington outgains Green Bay, 430 to 304. Almost a 130-yard margin separating these two teams. So what decides a game between one of the best teams in the NFL and one of the worst? Red zone execution and a handful of fourth downs. Even in a game like this where the actual final score might not indicate that it was close, that's how small the margins are in the NFL. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel at CEO.com.